I don't wear glasses. That's what I've told myself for the, the longest time. When I was a, a teenager in high school, I remember having trouble with my vision, but not wanting, not wanting to admit it to myself. And so rather than avoiding getting glasses, I would just sit at the front of the class so I could see whatever the teacher was doing a little bit better. And this continued even into university where I refused to admit that my eyes needed help. But what changed for me is I noticed that my eyes started to have a trouble at night, particularly when I was driving. Things that were really clear during the day were a lot hazy and unclear at night. And it started to feel a little bit unsafe. And so I swallowed my pride and I went to the optometrist. But even at the optometrist, I pretended like I had 20-20 vision. When he threw up those letters on the wall, I confidently shouted, E. I got the first letter. But the, the rest of the letters were a complete blur, and I, I failed that test miserably. And I ended up with, with glasses. But even though it took me a, a while to, to admit to myself that I needed some help, getting glasses was the, the best thing for me. When I am driving at night, when I'm watching a movie, or when I'm just out and about in everyday life, I see the world literally through a different lens. Colors are brighter, images are clearer. It's the same world around me, but something has shifted in how I'm seeing the world around me. Last week, we celebrated the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection of Christ changes everything. It changes how we see God, how we see ourselves, and how we see the world around us. And today we're beginning a new series looking at the book of Colossians in the New Testament. And the focus and main emphasis of Colossians is the centrality of Jesus in and through all things. And the hope of, of Colossians in exploring is that it gives a beautiful picture of what it means to live as people in light of the resurrection. And so as we go through this book over the next number of weeks, our hope is that we might in some ways put on the, the lens of Christ as we learn what it means to be people who live in light of the Easter story. And so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. It'll also come up on the screen behind me. Now to give you some context and to, to frame this passage before we jump in, this, was, uh, this, this book is it's actually a letter written by a guy named Paul. And he writes these words from prison to a, a, a small church community in Colossae. Colossae was a, was a church that, that he didn't start and a group of people whom he didn't really know, but he had a, a connection to this small community. And he gets wind that this small faith community is facing some really intense cultural pressures, that they're feeling tempted to turn away from the teaching of Jesus and to begin worshiping other gods and even worship Caesar himself. And Paul, concerned about their well-being and their, their faith, he offers this letter as a, as a letter of encouragement. And after beginning with a general greeting and a, and a prayer, or a Thanksgiving prayer, which is pretty standard in most of Paul's letters, he dives into the, the heart of the matter by offering a beautiful and rich poem beginning in verse 15, which reads this. He, being Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's a a, a beautiful and, and rich poem that Paul writes that's packed with meaning. Now, if you've ever rock, rock, uh, rock climbed before, a uh, general safety rule in rock climbing is you always want to have three points of contact on the rock before you make your next move. Meaning, before you move your hand, you make sure your other hand and your two feet are firmly planted on the rock before you, you move. It's a, a general safety principle to, to ensure your well-being. In rock climbing, what you hold on to is really important. And similarly, when it comes to matters of faith, what we hold on to as true and ultimately worthy of our attention is deeply important. What we think and believe about God matters and affects our everyday moments of life. And here in verses 15 to 20, Paul begins by giving his listeners a secure handle for which they are to ground their faith in the very person of Jesus Christ. And these verses are in some ways the the backbone to the entire letter that he writes, He starts by giving his listeners then and to us today a real clear picture of who God is and to bring clarity to that question. And so while this this text and maybe even this message might feel a bit theoretical and maybe even a bit dense at times, Paul's hope, as he says earlier in the letter, is that we might increase in our knowledge of God. The hope with this poem is that we might be people who grow in our understanding of who God is so that we might be able to live in light of, of the God that we've come to draw our attention to. And while there's so much in this poem that we could address, we could spend an endless amount of time doing that, but I won't keep you here for four hours. So what we will do is we're going to give you a couple of of rocks to hang onto using that rock climbing image, a couple of boulders that we can grip onto to try and get a a, a clue into what Paul is trying to push us towards. And so here's the the first rock. When we talk about who who is Jesus and what impact does that have on our life, here's the first boulder. Jesus creates. Jesus creates. That's, a, that's the first boulder. Now, in some cases, if you have, if you have kids, you might be able to see uh, physical characteristics of yourself in your children, right? Or if you have parents, you can sometimes see, especially as you age, mannerisms of your parents in yourself. Maybe you start talking the same way or you start doing some of the same things that annoyed you at one point. Now you're starting to do them yourself. And here at the very very beginning of this poem in verse 15, Paul begins by declaring that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Even more than the resemblances that we might have to our family members, he says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Meaning when you look at Christ, if you want to know what God looks like, you look at Christ. He describes how nobody has ever seen God, but God has come to us in Jesus in whom dwells the fullness of the deity. As he says in verse 18. Now, if someone was, was sitting in a, in a room and there was a, a wall dividing me and that person and I couldn't see them because of the wall, but if there was a, maybe a, a mirror in the hallway of the, the home or the building they were in, I might not be able to see the person because of the wall, but I might be able to look out into the hallway and catch the person's image or their reflection in that mirror. I might get a sense of what they are like by looking at their reflection. And in the same way, Jesus is the mirror image of God. The God who is there, but we normally can't see, but who reveals himself in the person of Christ. And Paul describes the the visible image of God, Christ, as the firstborn over all creation. Now, throughout the scriptures, the the firstborn of a family was always seen as a a position of of status and a a symbol of a, a position of importance. 
The firstborn, typically the son, was considered the next heir, the one who had received the largest family inheritance and the one who would take on the family responsibility for that particular, uh, for that particular family. And throughout the scriptures, God's chosen people, Israel themselves, were labeled as God's firstborn. The book of Exodus, God describes Israel as being his firstborn, describing them as being his chosen people, this high calling, this high responsibility that they had in the world. But here, Paul in Colossians 1 names Christ, not Israel, not anyone else, but Christ as the firstborn. Later on, he would describe Christ as the firstborn over the dead, describing his, his resurrection that very first Easter. He describes Christ as being the, the firstborn over all creation, meaning that Christ himself outranks everyone and everything in creation. And he goes on to explain what gives Christ this authority. What gives Christ the ability to be the, the firstborn over creation? When in verse 16, he says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And he sums up what he's trying to say. He says, All things were created through him and for him. These poetic lines of, of Paul would have likely triggered for his, his Jewish listeners the, the early account of creation found in the book of Genesis. Where in Genesis 1, we read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when you, when you read the narrative of how God created our world into, be, into, into beginning in, in Genesis 1, you see that God speaks, and after he speaks, formation happens. That out of nothing, something is formed. Out of chaos, there is order. God speaks, and the very word of God, the, the Logos, Christ himself, is there in the beginning, forming everything in the created world out of nothing. In Christ, we see the two worlds colliding. We see heaven and earth coming together. We see the invisible and the invisible. We see that the word of God made flesh. This is what gives him this ability to be declared as the firstborn overall. Which means that in Christ, everything has been created. The North Shore Mountains, the ocean, the beaches, beautiful cherry blossoms, every living and human, every living and breathing thing that has breath in its lungs has been created by Christ. And this is the, the first big rock that I think Paul wants us to, to hang on to. Because you see, this church in Colossae was being pulled away from who Jesus was. And they're being tempted to worship other gods. And Paul is trying to remind them of, of the God that they, they fell in love with, of the one who, who made their very being as a way to, to ground them back in the truth of who they are and who they are to worship. The fact that Christ has created all things has huge implications for all of us. Because if Christ has created all things, that means Christ has, has made you, he's made me. And if all things are made by him and for him, that means we were made by Christ and for him. That he is the one whom our hearts were designed to be, to be met in. If you take a moment to, to let that sink in, that the God of the universe, the one who makes the, the universe that our minds can't even wrap, our, 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 the one who makes the galaxies that our mind can't even wrap around, makes you. You are significant. You are, you are made by this same creator. And while we don't find ourselves in the, in the ancient world dealing with the, the same cultural pressures as this, uh, early, as this early church did, we in some ways know what it's like to be tempted to, to, be, to worship and to be pulled in all sorts of different directions when it comes to the things that we give our attention to. There's a quote that I've shared before by a pastor named Louis Giglio that I think captures what, what worship is at its heart. 
He says, you simply follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your money, and your allegiance. And at the end of that trail, you'll find a throne. And whatever or whoever is on that throne is, what is, of, is, of, is what's of highest value to you. On that throne is what you worship. And his point is that all of us give our allegiance to something. All of us worship something or someone. For some of us, it's, it's our careers. For some of you, it's your bank account. For some of you, it's your beauty or your talent or your skill or the image that you present to others. All of us have things that we, we worship, things that we look to define ourselves by. And Paul is reminding his listeners then and to us today that we were made by and for Christ. Meaning if we hold up anything as, as God of our lives other than the person of Christ, then our hearts will forever be dissatisfied, forever chasing, forever wanting more. This is the, the first rock that Jesus creates. Okay? Got that? Yeah? Good. All right, stay with me. Now here's the, the second rock. Jesus not only creates, but Jesus holds. Okay? And notice I'm not using past tense words. words. It's not that Jesus created and Jesus held, but Jesus is still today actively creating and, and in the work of creation still today. Jesus is actively holding even now. And so that's the second rock is that Jesus holds. Now this poem is written in a, in a very intentional way. The first half and the second half mirror, mirror each other in the words and in the themes that they're trying to express. And in this writing style, the, the middle acts as the hinge that holds it all together. In this case, the, the middle verse is, is verse 17, which reads that in him all things hold together. And you could say that Paul, what the, the main argument that Paul is trying to make in this poem is found right here in verse 17, that Christ holds all things together. Christ holds all things. In Greek mythology, the, the god Atlas is often depicted as the god who, who, who held the, the world. And all of the, the depictions, he, he's, he's described as kind of feeling the, the weight of the, the world on his shoulders. And Paul, maybe being aware of the, 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 the influence of this thinking, points out that Christ, not Atlas, is the, the God who holds all things together. If you look at the picture, Atlas is, is weighed down and, and feeling burdened by the, by the weight of the world. But Christ, because he is creator, can hold and sustain all that he has made in perfect balance. He's able to, to, to hold it because he has created it. Christ is not only creator, but he is the glue that keeps this world together, that keeps all things together. I remember a number of weeks ago going to to Superstore and forgetting to bring my my grocery uh, shopping bags. And I awkwardly had to carry all these items from the till to my car, and I felt like I was just dropping things all over the place. And there's a sense in which there are times in our lives where it feels like we're just holding on to a lot of different things. We have to hold on to our, our busy schedules, our, our, our bills that are due, and, and all the things that are demanding our time, different family dynamics, and, and a lot of different things. And I don't know about you, but there are times in my life where I feel like I'm just not holding things together, where it feels like I'm dropping the ball in, in one area of my life or another. Well, at the very center of this poem, Paul points us toward the, the hope that's found in Christ for all the places that we feel like we're falling apart. He makes the point that if Christ can hold the entire universe together, then he can hold us together as well. In Christ, we can be held by the one who holds all things. There you go. Throughout these verses, uh, if you look, if you read this, um, this beautiful poem, seven times that the English word all is repeated. 
And it's translated from the Greek word pause, which means every part, the totality of everything. And the emphasis is that no part of our life is untouched from the, the hand of God. Meaning your, your family, your life, your finances, your work, your mental health, your, your emotional well-being, your, your, your journey that you find yourself on in, in a life of faith is all held by this same Christ. As writer Tim Mackey puts it, no part of human existence remains untouched by the loving, loving and liberating rule of Jesus. You know, today is, uh, is Good Seed Sunday, and it's a day where followers of Christ around the world celebrate the fact that God is creator and remember our call to, to steward the earth. And the second law of thermodynamics says that, that all things run down, that if left to themselves, the future of everything is destruction and decay. And if you were to take a look at our, our planet and the world around us, you'd, you'd see that to be true. We have made a, a complete mess of the, the world we live in. When you think about the, the, the emissions that we're, we're producing and its effects on rising ocean levels, the changing weather systems, and the, the effect it's having on our agriculture, agriculture system, we haven't been the greatest at stewarding this place that God has entrusted us to. But even with us mismanaging and taking inadequate care of this earth, Christ is still holding all things together. When you take a step back and consider the, the earth and how it's tilted at just the right angle, and how if it was tilted three degrees either way, life would not be sustainable on this planet. When you think about how fast the earth spins and how if it were to spin any faster, life on this planet wouldn't exist and everything would just freeze. And if it were to spin any slower, everything would be burned up by the sun. God has created this world and he's holding it together even now, even amongst the, the chaos, even amongst the, 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 the fear of, of global warming and all the, the negative effects that we have uh, done by not properly caring for this world. God is still holding it together. And the point is that even in a world that we're not stewarding, Christ is still holding all things. Christ holds all things means that he doesn't just wind up the earth and, and let it go and run its course, but he's actively involved, actively, continually stewarding and recreating every single moment of every day. And as people who follow Jesus, he invites us to join him in caring for his good world. When we partner with God in, in stewarding the earth, we play a role in the reconciliation that he's doing and, and making in all things. When we care for creation by, by being mindful of our, of our energy usage, when we care for, for creation by, by composting or other things that we do in the everyday aspect of our lives, by our actions, we are declaring that Jesus is creator. And so it's no small thing to, to recycle or to be mindful of your waste. Because every time we engage in those things, we declare once and again through our actions that Jesus is creator and his earth is worth stewarding. Jesus holds all things. He creates and he holds. Those are the, the, the two, two rocks there. Let me give you a third one. You ready for another one? I can tell. Jesus not only creates, he holds, but here's the third one. Jesus reconciles. He reconciles. It doesn't take uh, much. You could probably spend five minutes watching the evening news to tell that our world is, is quite broken, that there's a lot of chaos and, and dysfunction in our world. And in verse 19, Paul points us to the, the, the great hope that is found in, in the person of Christ, where he says in verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
reconcile here can be defined as this coming together. Where there was one, once a, a fracture, where there was once a, a disunity, there is now a, a coming together of all things. And through his work on the cross, Christ does not, he's not only holds, creates all things and, and holds all things, but he's constantly bringing things together. Where there is separation between us and God, he makes a way. Where there is separation between us and our fellow humans, he, he's working actively by his spirit, bringing about reconciliation. You know, I remember a, a number of years ago, a, a friend sharing with me a, an image that stayed with me till today. It was during a, a period in my life where I was feeling, uh, feeling like I was in a pretty uh, hard place and, and feeling quite unsure of myself and unsure of God. I was feeling particularly broken in this period of my life. And I shared with my friend that I had been conf- recently confronted with a lot of things from my childhood that had filled me with a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and made me feel, again, begin to question God, question myself, and just really question everything. And my friend, being a gentle listener, just offered if he could do a, a, offer a simple prayer for me. And after spending some time in silence, he, and spending some time listening to God, he offered this, this image to me. He said, Alvin, as I, as I listen to you, I get this sense that God is, is holding all the, the brokenness of your story. He's like, I, I almost imagine the hand of God holding these, these shards of glass, these broken pieces of, of who you are. But he said, even in that, no piece of brokenness, no part of who you are is left out of the hand of God. And he described how he envisioned maybe God putting together these broken pieces that I felt like I was holding. And he was putting them together in a way that was making me all the more beautiful, all the more different than what I thought I was. And he shared with me the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery called kintsugi. And in kintsugi, it's where these broken pieces of pottery are mended together with gold. And this image has been one that stayed with me and has been a, a great hope that I look to when I think about the work of Christ and his reconciliation work in my own personal story, as I think about reconciliation with myself, that Christ is, is mending together all the, the brokenness of our lives, all the places where we feel like we fall short, all the places that we feel like we aren't enough. He's bringing them all together. It's all made possible by his work on the cross. The hope, of, of the, hope that Christ, uh, the hope that Paul is, is trying to, to showcase to us, this, this great hope found in this poem, is that the, the same God who creates, holds, and then, and then is recreating, is, is actively engaging in his reconciliation work in and through us, helping us to become the people that we were intended to be, holding the very life and spirit of God. The reconciliation work of Christ is, is vast. It touches everything and every place. He doesn't just reconcile some things, but Paul says Jesus reconciles all things. There's that all word again. That no place of our story, of our brokenness, of our sin, of our failure, of our shortcoming is left untouched by the grace of God. And through his bloodshed on the cross, we are now at peace with God. Because of the the work of Christ that very first Easter, we now have, have peace. We have right relationship with our maker. And we're invited to step into right relationship, to walk into peace with each other, with the earth, and with ourselves. A scholar named N.T. Wright said it like this when he said, The death of an obscure Jew, meaning Jesus, on a seemingly God-forsaken hill in in the backwater of the Roman Empire attracted no notice from the historians of the era. But it was the event that reconciles heaven and earth and us to God. Christ's death and resurrection is like a, a cosmic magnet that brings all things together. All things that are displaced and disorientated are now held together in the perfect love of God. And when you consider this, this story, 
When you consider the, the story of the scriptures, of how God creates a beautiful, wonderful world, how he creates beautiful, wonderful people, and how we, we mess it up by just trying to go our own way, by trying to choose a world away from the, the one we were made for. And yet the, the one who has been wronged, God himself enters into the story, enters into his own creation to, to, to play a role in, in reconciling it and making it back to what it was and even more beautiful. You almost can't make it up. It almost seems too good to be true. But this is a, the great hope that Paul is trying to invite us and his early listeners into to try and pull back from all the different things that would try and tug at our heart to say, this is the God who you worship. This is the one who made you, who knows you, and your heart is designed for. Jesus creates, he holds, and he reconciles. And Paul invites us to, to hold on to these rocks, I think, because they, they, they're, they're good news to be reminded of time and time again. I would imagine as he pens this poem that he intended his early listeners to, to repeat it over and over again, as this letter was being circulated and as it's even being read now, that we would come back to it time and time again to remember the, the answer to that question of, of who is Jesus? Who is the one that's, that's getting our attention? Who is the one that our hearts are made for? There's a song that we're going we're gonna to sing at the end of our service after we come to the table called Beautiful Things. And this song sums up a good picture of all the things that God is actively doing even now in our world. The song is a celebration of the fact that God makes new and beautiful things from unexpected places. He makes human beings from the, the dust of the earth. He makes something out of nothing. He makes order out of chaos. And one of the, my favorite lines in the song that we're going to sing is, all around, hope is springing up from this old ground. Out of chaos, life is being found in you. And the song is an invitation to see the, the life of Christ revealing himself in creation, in brokenness, and in our larger world. To in some ways re respond to this great God with a, with a yes of our heart. As the prophet Isaiah says, See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? There's a sense in which we, when we come to the table, when we declare this reality of who God is, our hearts are reawakened to the one that, who is doing something new in our world and in our stories. As we continue to live into the, the resurrection and continue to live into what it means to be people who celebrate the Easter story, not just once a year, but every moment of every day, may we be filled with this awakening of, of the God who has captured our hearts. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that in your mercy and in your grace, that you come into our story that you come into, into your story and you make all things new. That the promise of, of Easter is that you are actively making us new, making your world new, making all things new. May we be people who are forever changed by your spirit, who are ever drawn and compelled to, to who you are. May poems like this forever capture our heart and, and reorient us to the God that we worship. And as we come to the table now, we ask that by your spirit, you would come to touch and bless these simple elements. Then in the way that you created the, the world and bringing something out of nothing and an order out of chaos, we ask that you would do your work again and transform these elements, that you would bring, take ordinary elements and make them extraordinary as we receive it. So come now by your Holy Spirit and bless and welcome us at this meal. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.